As many of you know, uh, at the end of the year, uh, I'll be passing the baton of lead pastor to Caleb Click when he'll be joining us with his wife Mallory and their four daughters, and then I'll transition into an assistant pastor role here uh, at Oak Mountain. And periodically people ask me, especially now, what have been some of the factors that has contributed uh, to the longevity of 35 years of ministry at Oak Mountain? And one of the things that immediately comes to mind is that for many years, I have been part of a pastor cohort, actually two, uh, one that has met for about 25 years, one that's met for about 17 years. And uh, Brian Habig and Gary Purdy as well are both part of that cohort. And we get together, we, we share our hearts, we keep each other accountable, we talk about the struggles of ministry, the joys of ministry, the future of ministry. And so it is my great pleasure to be able to introduce to you this morning uh, Brian Habig, Brian and his wife Dana, uh, both hail from Mississippi. Uh, Brian was on a campus ministry with RUF for 10 years. And then he was called to plant a church in Greenville, South Carolina. It's called Downtown Presbyterian Church. I feel that the ethos of downtown is very similar uh, to the ethos here at Oak Mountain. Uh, another thing that Brian and I have in common is we both serve on the board of Covenant Theological Seminary, and uh, that's been a real blessing as well. So uh, Brian and Dana have three children, uh, two sons and a daughter. The youngest son attends Samford. And so I've been trying to get Brian to preach here for, for years, and uh, finally it took his son going to Samford for him to come. So Brian, come on up, bud. Thank you, and good morning. Let me say this before I read the text. This is my first time to Oak Mountain after Bob shamed me. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to tell you, I, I'm not an expert about churches, but I've you know, seen my share in your pastors and your staff and your musicians and your singers. Uh, you have an embarrassment of riches. God has been very kind to Oak Mountain. I want to open God's Word with you, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. If there's a way for you to have that in front of you as I'm preaching, I'd love that because I'll refer back to the text, Romans 8, 18 through 25. So Bob mentioned that I'm a pastor of downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and you know, even though you don't really, in our kind of Presbyterianism, we don't formally have parishes, but we treat the downtown of our city like our first parish, and we work out from there, and we affect other neighbors, but that's where our ministry focus begins. And we actually pray, we use the language of finding avenues of downtown to love, and we pray that God opens doors in these different avenues of the city's life and the downtown's life. And years ago, I got an invitation to serve on a panel of the sort of, or one of the cool downtown Theaters. It's called Warehouse Theater. And it was close to Halloween. I believe that, and this was unusual for them. I've never seen them do anything like this before or after. They did a production of the Screw Tape Letters, not their normal material. And, and they wanted to have a discussion about good and evil. And so they invited some people to serve on a panel. And I would say that of the panelists, I was the closest approxim approximation of Oak Mountain's viewpoint. 
So we did some Q&A, and um, a woman stood up, and she, I remember she did her hands like this. She said, I just, I feel so overcome with the evil in the world and bad news. Like, I just feel like sometimes I can't see any light. Can, can you just kind of speak to that? Can you speak to, like, what do you do with that? And I, did, and, I, and I happened to go last, and I didn't know how the other panelists would respond, but each of them started talking about, well, you know what, you should pay attention to this nonprofit and, and this service group and just kind of these encouraging things that people are doing out there, all of which is great. And then it got to me. Have you ever been in the position where you start a comment with, you know, I hate to be the heavy here. <laughs> and I said, I hate to be the heavy here. But let me, let me give you a fact. And this is years ago, so this would have been closer to the time. In 2010, I think it was January 2010, an earthquake hit Haiti. Do you remember that, if you're around? Prior to that earthquake, there were 10,000 NGOs working in Haiti, non-governmental organizations. So all kinds of nonprofits and service groups. Ten, this is not a huge country. 10,000 NGOs in Haiti, negligible impact. Then the earthquake hit. And I found myself saying to this group at this warehouse theater, no one's going to fix that. But then I try to speak about Scripture recognizes that, but it doesn't stop there. And this passage is very much about both that the world is broken to a degree that you and I are not going to go out there and fix. And that's not where we stop. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Please stand. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, not, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Precious Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, I got a text 
from one of our church members. And the text said, Brian, I think I saw, I'm not going to use his real name. I think I saw Robert walking around downtown. He looks homeless. And Robert was a former member of downtown Presbyterian Church. And if you're picturing an older man, not younger man. And when he was a member of our church, I think he was still in his late 20s. And if you saw Robert now, uh, he very much looks like a homeless man. Um, shaggy hair. He had sandy hair. Now it has sun streaks in it from being outside so much. A big bushy beard. His clothes smell. Um, as I'm saying this to you right now, you might be thinking, what? Well, what are y'all doing about it? Like, go find him. If you see him, go find him and house him and feed him and see if he needs medical attention and see if there's ways to find some kind of gainful employment for him. I and members of our church have tried to do all that multiple times. And Robert is mentally ill. He does not want to leave his life. He's actually developed a new accent. He sounds like he's from another country and English is his second language. And it's, that has grown out of his mental illness. You can't fix people. He got me in the A30 service too. I want to fix him. And I want to garner the resources but he's broken. I'm not saying he doesn't matter. But he's broken. He's broken because we're all broken. The whole world broke. And so we groan. And what I want to look at from this passage, from Paul's honesty, his apostolic honesty, is that the world groans, but we who are in Christ, we who make up the Holy Catholic Church, we wait. So let's think about our groaning world and our waiting world. First off, our groaning world, and I, you know, I, I think you must have picked up on this just reading the passage that Paul gives the whole creation sort of personal traits, like that the whole creation, and you're probably primarily thinking of earth, but he speaks in terms of the whole creation that like a person, it can experience the violation of its will. And it can be in bondage, it can be imprisoned. And it can long to get out of there. And it can groan about the fact that it wants to get out of there and it's not. All those are true, like a person. What's the cause of the imprisonment? What's the cause of the pain that's making all the creation groan? Look in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, who is him? Who's it talking about? It's not the devil, who Scripture regards as a real being. He doesn't have the power and authority to do that to all the creation. The one who subjected the whole creation to futility is God. 
And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And by the way, at Downtown Prez, this is always the Old Testament, and this is always the future. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that when the first human beings disobey God, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground did not disobey me. And the creatures did not disobey me, except one, you. So cursed is the ground because of you. And now it's going to experience this futility. It's still beautiful. It's still amazing. It still has this incredible contrast of beauty and artistry and order. But now it's broken. Who participates in the groaning? I've already said this. The whole creation. uh, Verse 22 We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul was single. Paul was not a father to children. But Paul knew what childbirth involved as a man from a family. And he doesn't use this metaphor lightly. He says, what is it like for the whole, what's it like for the soil? What's it like for the animals and trees? Because of what we did, it is like a woman almost to the point of childbirth in the throes of pain and the child has not yet arrived. That's what it's like for the whole creation. And not just for the rocks and the trees and the birds. Verse 23, for us. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait, I wish I knew all of you better. And I would love to talk to you one on one the way your pastors get to, to know more about what makes you groan. Let me just give you a sample list of the world that we occupy and of what's in this room with different ones of you miscarriages. Infertility, learning disabilities, birth defects, child abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, trafficking, torture, betrayal, loneliness, suicide. All alienation and disconnection, all crime, all illness, physical and mental, all addiction, all cruelty. That's all we know. And it will make anyone groan. One of the things that I look forward to as as Christmas gets closer is on Christmas Eve there's a live broadcast from England on the BBC on Christmas Eve it's in the afternoon there it's in the morning here and it's the service of lessons and carols the festival of nine lessons and carols from King's College Chapel in Cambridge I'm not a huge fan of choral music but this is the music That's what God meant for choirs to sound like. And 
at the festival of nine lessons and carols, they always start with the same, same song. We actually have lessons and carols at our church, and we always start with this song. It's an old hymn called Once in Royal David City. It's an old song, and the English is old. It's talking about, you know, God the Son taking on our humanity and being born, becoming a man. Not just entering our world, but experiencing our broken world. Sorry. One of the lyrics is that it says, He feeleth for our sadness. He feeleth for our sadness. Did you know that God is like that? Did you know that God took on flesh not to just do this thing called atonement, do this thing called the cross, but to take on life in a groaning world and experience what it is to groan. Do you know the Gospels record Jesus groaning? Most English translations don't translate it that way, I think because we're uncomfortable with that language of Jesus groaning. Usually it's translated, he sighed deeply. But in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8, on two different occasions, one, Jesus is presented with a man, he's deaf, and he has a speech impediment. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd. It's weird. He puts his fingers in the man's ears and he spits and touches the man's tongue. And then he groans. Because he's in the presence of what the fall does to our bodies. Next chapter, the Pharisees come griping at him and testing him and say, Show us a sign from heaven. She have the authority to do these things. Only after he's like eradicating disease from Judea. Show us a sign from heaven. Jesus groans. Because he's in the presence of what the fall does to people's souls. We groan. But we don't just groan. We wait. Our waiting world. How, how, how does Paul want us to wait? Look in verse 25. He's very realistic. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, when he says hope, you have to understand, number one, he's using that as an active verb. It's not like a passive disposition. Let me just sit back and just watch history go down the tank and just try to survive. It's an active thing to hope. And hope in the New Testament is not used the way we typically use it. We typically use it in the sense of, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. I hope it's to my liking. I hope our team wins. I hope they have a safe trip. But I have no control over what's going to happen. That's not how the New Testament uses the word hope. Hope means to live in the expectation of a certain future event a future certainty, and for that to inform your present. We hope for what we do not see. What does that look like? Go back up to verse 19, and this is one of my favorite parts. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, Paul uses a term there. It's a technical term. Now, I did this in the early service. I've got to do it again. I'm going to tell you the Greek word. You invite a nerd to your church, and you're going to get nerd content. <laughs> the term 
is apakaradakia, which is about as Greek sounding as I can imagine a word sounding. Apakaradakia is a technical term that describes someone doing this. An older English translation actually translated verse 19, the whole creation stands on tiptoe, waiting. Now because of sadness or discouragement or cynicism or unbelief this morning, you might feel like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not waiting on tiptoe. It's almost as if the creation would say, you're free to do that if you want to. But we are looking over the horizon for him to come and make all things new, actively. What will happen when he comes over the horizon? What are we waiting for? Verse, verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Meaning, the, <laughs> this personified creation, it knows it's in bondage. It knows it moves toward corruption. It knows it experiences decay, and it is looking for one to come over the horizon and free it so that it's still the creation, still rocks and rivers and mountains and hills and grass and coffee. <laughs> All the things, but it's free now not to decay, not to, not to be corrupted, a friend of mine told me about one time he was in a, went to a zoo, and this kind of makes me sad to think about, and I don't mean that I'm, I'm not anti-zoo, but the, the, he, he said he saw an eagle. I'm sorry, I'm so sniffly. He saw an eagle in a cage, and there, there was, I mean, it was just cage and then eagle. And so it's standing on the bar, and people are staring at it, and I, I, it apparently just got tired of people staring at it and wanted to flex. And so all of a sudden it just went, and my friend said his hair moved back from the power of the wings of this thing. That's still, his talons are around the bar. And he said to me, when you felt it, the, the, you know, what you thought was, whew, imagine that thing out of its cage. And Paul wants us to think about what, what will uncaged air be like? What will uncaged sunlight be like? What will uncaged friendship and uncaged music be like? Uncaged humor? No sarcasm, no hurt, no cynicism, but uncaged. You know why it's hard to wait on this? We can't see it. And the great thing about Paul is Paul is very realistic. Look at verse 24. In this hope, now remember, active, living now in light of a future certainty. In this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if we could already see this, I wouldn't be writing to you about hope. So what do we do with this? And I really want to lean into this because it may be that as you're listening to this, 
And especially if you're hurting right now, especially if you're in physical pain or emotional pain or you've experienced loss or death or you're just in a bout of cynicism and unbelief or you're not yet a Christian. You, you may be listening to this and think, okay, I like the concept. I like it. I like, I like uncaged air. I don't know what that means. It sounds awesome. Uncaged sunlight sounds awesome. I don't know what to do. I don't know. How do I know that's real? How do I know this is not fiction? It's a neat concept. Two thoughts. Thought number one, the beginning of Romans. I'm not looking at our passage. Way back at the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter one, almost the first few verses, Jesus said, I mean, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The public, eyewitnessed, real, physical, bodily resurrection. That that was God saying to the world, my promises will come true. If you follow him, if you entrust yourself to him, as he has been raised, you will be raised. But this would go further to say, as he has been raised, the creation will be raised and liberated. But one more thing, and this is in the text, because if you're thinking, boil it down to me. I know we're not supposed to think that way, but we're American and we do. What about me? Verse 23. Now, Paul's writing to Christians, so this is not just because we're human. This is for those who are in Christ. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan now. But, but don't miss what he just said, that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a very Old Testament way of talking. The first fruits were offered to God. The first fruits were the first fruits. The first harvest, which meant count on way more harvest. Because of the presence of this, count on all the future harvest. If you are in Christ this morning, you are inhabited by the third person of the Godhead. You are inhabited by God the Spirit, who's equal in power and glory to God the Father and God the Son. And that is the first fruit of what God is going to do for us and to us and in us. That we will be set free from physical corruption and decay and sickness and death and we will not live in an ethereal eternity in a kind of weird science fiction looking city. We will live on the new earth and it will look like earth freed from corruption. Let me leave you with an image. Um, back before all the Harry and Meghan stuff, there was the nice, straightforward wedding of William and Kate. <laughs> Drama-free. Things went the way they're supposed to. No books. You can look this up online and fact-check me, because that's the good thing about Presbyterianism, accountability. <laughs> when... William and Kate finally come to the point in the ceremony where they say their vows to each other. They're not even facing each other. They, they're kneeling in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury in Westminster Abbey. And I don't know if you remember this, but leading up to that point, there's all the news about, you know, the, the, the monarchy's really a diminished institution. They just don't think the, 
the English people have the sort of enthusiasm they used to have. Droves of people showed up at Westminster Abbey in London. Droves. And surrounded it. And had screens to watch of the service outside of Westminster Abbey. And so in real time, when the Archbishop of Canterbury says that he pronounces them husband and wife in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and he goes straight into a benediction and may the Lord, as he's saying, and may the Lord all of a sudden, you, you look it up online, you can hear, and it's the crowds outside. And I looked it back up, I showed it to my wife Dana and said, look at Kate's face when that happens. And we rewound it, get to the end of the pronouncement, and now may the Lord, and the, ah, she's kneeling, I mean, this is like Church of England flexing its liturgical muscles, it's super reverent. She's like this, and when, it, when the crowd roars, she smiles. Like, it happened. And they know it happened. And I'll just say to you, I don't exactly know what it means when the Psalms say that the rivers will clap their hands. And that Oak Mountain and Red Mountain will sing for joy. But I want it to. And when Christ marries us and we are at the marriage feast of the Lamb, it will. And you will be free. And you will never groan again. With the knowledge of that, go out into Birmingham and bring light into darkness and roll back the effects of the fall. You cannot fix everything. He will fix everything. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, drive these truths deep down into our heart. Would you help us to wait actively not passively and not cynically and not unbelievingly, to wait for you with great hope. And Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, would you energize this room and the people of this church to go out and to bring the light of Christ by word and deed to Birmingham and beyond, to use their gifts to show what you are like. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you, my friend. What motivation as we think about ministry in our city, uh, over the mountain, over the fence, and yes, continually overseas. What motivation. We can all relate to a broken world. But we can respond by being overwhelmed or we can respond like many believers do today with anger. Or we can enter into the groaning and bring the hope of the gospel. Fly those missions off of this aircraft carrier. Missions of love, mercy, grace, renewal, and life. That's our hope. Let's all stand and hear the benediction. Again, remember, this is God's good word over you so that we can not only know we're going to be blessed, but we can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And now may the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always.